Uh, so yes, we're looking at uh, Psalm 92 uh, tonight. The, uh, I read different translations of the Bible, and this one, this description is from the New American Standard Bible. And it describes Psalm 92 as a psalm of thanksgiving and of God's faithfulness used for temple services on the Sabbath day. I like this description because it says the psalm points to one of corporate worship and praise to God to be meditated on on the Sabbath, a day when the Jews were not only commanded to rest, but also worship God. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, I should be putting my glasses on. Uh, Moses writes, uh, verse 3, uh, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. A holy convocation, meaning a day when Jews were gathered together for corporate worship. The Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses directly by God on Mount Sinai. Maybe like me, you're, you're curious and want to understand the Sabbath in today's context. Maybe you haven't given it much thought, or maybe you have already studied it and have come to your own conclusion. So if I could just spend five minutes to just look into the Sabbath, uh, I, 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 I think it, it, it's worthwhile. Uh, so the pr principle of the Sabbath day is laid out in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It's one of the Ten Commandments Moses wrote down as instructed to him by God for the people of Israel. So verse 8, chapter 20 in Exodus starts as, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall do no work. And then jumping to verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. So God did not take the seventh day because God was tired. Instead, he was modeling the idea of rest for his people so they could properly worship him. If people continually work without rest, they become exhausted. When people get exhausted, they have little left to connect with God, as he would want us to. So he had set aside, God had set aside a specific day for his people, which began in their 40-year a wilderness journey after leaving Egypt. Looking at the New Testament scriptures today, the Lord made it clear he has fulfilled the law. And so we have been freed from the law. But he also made, clear, made it clear he did not abolish the law. So we're not free to do as we please. 
For example, we're not free to commit murder. We're not free to steal. We are to still obey the law. Uh, works cannot save us. Does not mean works. In other words, obeying the law is no longer relevant. It is still relevant. The law is reaffirmed again in the New Testament, in particular the Ten Commandments, except for the Sabbath. The Sabbath takes a bit of a different direction. Paul in Romans 14, verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. So Paul says that one person would consider every day alike, and another person would consider one day as being more special than the other days. But let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So whether we observe a day or, or not, our focus is now onto the Lord. As Christians, we have the freedom, if we feel convicted, and want to observe the Sabbath. We decide what we can or don't, what we can, sorry, what we can or cannot do on a day set apart from the other days. Of course, we want to be mindful, as Paul reminded the Colossians, do not have so many do's and don'ts, so much so that it defeated the purpose of rest. Paul also says no one is to judge how we observe that day. In Colossians chapter 2, 16, verse 16 and 17, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, a new moon, or the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. In Luke 6, Chapter 6, the Lord, uh, he rebuked the criticism of the Pharisees when his disciples were picking the grain on the Sabbath so they could eat. In verse 5 of chapter, chapter 6, the Lord says, And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. As believers in Christ, we belong to the Lord, and the Lord is greater than the Sabbath. It's more important to be under Christ, freed from the law of the Sabbath, freed from observing those rules. Instead, the focus or substance now is of Christ. So finally, to conclude on this little uh, talk on the Sabbath, ultimately what God wants for us is to set aside time to rest, a day to rest maybe, and that can be any day or time of a week. God wants his people to physically rest so they have the energy to reconnect with them. And the best time to do that is when we're rested. Rest is good for our physical being, our spiritual well-being. Uh, Sunday may be our day of rest and corporate worship. That's all good. Because we know when we're too busy doing other things, the Lord does not get, get the attention he deserves. Okay, so that's it uh, for that little, little bit. We're, we're now on Psalm 92. I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, verse 1, 
It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name. O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your, your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. O oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless, senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of inequity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of inequity shall be scattered. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye has also, has also seen my desire on my en enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. And last verse, 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. We can break down this psalm into three little sections. Uh, the first section of a psalm, which comprises of verses 1 to 6, basically is a section of thanksgiving and praise to God, an acknowledgement of God's works, his wisdom, the wisdom that created the, the universe we live in, the wisdom beyond human understanding. The second section, verses 7 to 9, is God's wisdom that will bring judgment on the wicked. And the third section, verses 10 to 15, is God's blessing on the believers, life in the present and the life to come. So starting at verse 1 again, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It is not only good, but we don't cease to give thanks and sing praises to God because that's what God desires of us. It makes him feel good and it makes us feel good too. We do it because of who God is. I've written down seven reasons. I'm sure there's many more than seven, but these are the seven reasons of why we praise him and give him thanks. Um, so God created the universe. One, two. He created man, made his own image. Three, he sustains all life forms, including human life. Four, he blesses his creation by providing all that it needs. 
Five, he has redeemed humanity from its sins. Six, he has justified us by giving up his own son. And seven, he has given us an eternal hope when everything will be made right. So that's why we give thanks and give praises to God. And we sing praises because it's part of our, of our worship and giving thanks and praise to God. Because God enjoys hearing his creation sing. He gave us voices not only to speak, but also sing. We could just read the lyrics to a hymn. It's not the same. Singing brings a different perspective to the, to the words. It makes them more powerful. Add instruments to the singing, it takes the singing to another level. If we can appreciate all this singing, and so it must be for God to hear his creation sing. Verse two, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Loving kindness is an interesting word. It's like two words have been put together, loving and kindness, and obvious in, in its meaning. Of course, we have to remember these Psalms originated from the Hebrew language. And like many Hebrew language uh, uh, words, uh, it doesn't translate precisely into an English word. So the word, this word is, is the word hesed, which is often translated as loving kindness. Hesed means to give oneself fully with love and compassion. Synonymous with God's character, why we find it often used to describe God, of his loving kindness for his people, even when they sin against them. So in the morning, we acknowledge God for his loving kindness because he has given us another day. We thank him and we pray his spirit will lead and guide us on that day because of his loving kindness. Of course, we don't always know how the day is going to shape up. It may be a good day, a bad day, or even a horrible day. But when the day is over, as nighttime comes, we know and acknowledge God is faithful. Faithfulness is defined as the fact or quality of being true to one's word or commitments as to, one, as to what one has pledged to do. Of course, in this context, one is God. We can trust God, we can trust his promises, we can trust his word. That is what faith is. We don't see God, yet we completely trust him. He promises he's always with us. He has given us his, his spirit who indwells in us to keep us going. We praise him when it's good and persevere when it's not so good. Knowing he's always present because we need him. So going on to verse four now, the psalmist says, for you, Lord, have made me glad for your work. 
I will triumph in the work, works of your hands. Verse 5, O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. Next, the psalmist talks about God's work. It's referenced three times because we ultimately will triumph in the works of his hands. We cannot fully understand God's work. We don't need to. As the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 55, verse 8, Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Job put in another way. Job is seen as perhaps the oldest book in, in the Bible. Some scholars think it is the oldest, that it was written probably close to 4,000 years ago. And even back then, Job already understood God's greatness. His works and knowledge go beyond what we as his creation can grasp. By the prompting of God's spirit, Job writes in chapters 38 to 41, questions humans cannot answer to this day. Job, uh, sorry, Job's conclusion, he will basically keep his, his mouth shut. He doesn't have the answers. In chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile or insignificant. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will, not proceed, I will proceed no further. In Psalm 40, David says in verse 5, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, none can, can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to declare. And so to continue on the theme of God's works, back to Psalm 92, verse 6 says, A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. The senseless man one who has no common sense and the fool don't understand. They don't accept that God is so much greater than we are, that his understanding is so much greater than ours. They refuse to accept there is such a God. And today people are still trying to figure it all out, thinking there's an explanation that someday we'll just explain it all outside of God. As Paul points out, these people who consider themselves wise are actually the fools. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again, 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The point is, just like the Corinthians considered themselves wise at the time, it's no different today. Wisdom of the world, as much as it has value, great value, it will never override God's wisdom. The pot will never tell the potter how it was made. We need to accept God's wisdom, even if it makes us fools, because that's how God sees it. We will never outsmart God. It's futile. We're fools when compared to God. And this wisdom of God is what will judge the wicked someday. Which takes us to the second section, uh, verse 7 of Psalm 92. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of inequity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. Uh, verse 7 takes me back to Psalm 73, which we covered a couple months ago. A quick recap, his life doesn't seem fair to Asaph, the psalmist. How the wicked are everywhere, that they spring up like grass. How the wicked prosper, they flourish, good things happen to them. Yet Asaph, who is righteous, only suffers. But when he realizes that there will be judgment, the wicked will ultimately be destroyed. This is all only temporal. In Psalm 73, verse 16 to 18, Asaph says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. So back to Psalm 92, verses 8 and 9, or verses 8. Um, but you, Lord, are on high forevermore. Uh, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of inequity shall be scattered. But you, Lord, are on high are on high forevermore. In other words, God sits on high, on his throne, so to speak. We can't go higher than God, and he sits there eternally. No one will ever replace him. But his enemies are not eternal. They won't last in their, in their prosperity and wickedness. They will perish and be destroyed. In verse 9, the psalmist repeats three times who God will be victorious over. His enemies, the workers of inequity, to emphasize their ultimate demise. In Psalm 37, David reaffirms again how God will ultimately take care of the wicked. Although they flourish like the greenery of the grass and the tree, they will disappear. They are not like the palm tree and the cedar that the psalmist describes in the next section of verses for the righteous. In um, Psalm 37, verse 1, he says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of inequity, 
Worthy shall, shall, shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Jumping to verse 35, he says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. So now we're to the last section of the, uh, the, the, the verses in Psalm 92. Verses 10 to 15 is God's faithfulness in the righteous or believer's life. So verse 10 says, But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. So in contrast to what's awaiting the wicked, the psalmist describes what the righteous get. The horn was a symbol of strength in the Old Testament. So was the ox. They're both used figuratively to describe how God exalts the righteous and how God strengthens them. And the anointing with fresh oil is just another blessing poured out upon the righteous. In the Old Testament, the kings were anointed with oil, starting with King Saul, the first king of Israel. He was set apart to serve God as king to serve his people. So the righteous have been set apart. We have been anointed. We are God's people to serve in his kingdom. Verse 11 says, my eye also has seen my desire on my en enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. In verse 11, the psalmist sees and hears. In other words, he understands the desire or victory over his enemy, enemies. The people of God will be victorious in the end. Then the psalmist described God's blessing in the believer's life to come. Verse 12, he says, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Here the psalmist uses the image, imagery of trees or what life will be like for the righteous. Not any tree, but first a palm tree, a tree described as noble, strong, and bold. A tree that will also flourish, bear fruit. Then the cedar trees of Lebanon. They were known for their size, strength, durability, beauty, and usefulness. In other words, the righteous will have the qualities of these two trees. Of course, it's a figure of speech again. We may not be physically strong, durable, or beautiful like the trees. It's not the outer appearance he's talking about, but the inner being. Like the, tree, like the trees, the righteous bear fruit, and are strong in their faith. Just like the trees are planted and rooted, the righteous will be planted in God's house, rooted in his presence, where believers live and flourish. As Paul says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Of course, this verse doesn't mean that as we get old, life gets better. Physically, the, 
body breaks down as we get older. Like many of us, no one will disagree, we're not getting any younger. It's more in a spiritual sense. We shall be flourishing in godly wisdom, in maturity, and in grace. The righteous will continue to bear fruit in that sense. Old age is not a hindrance to bearing fruit. In fact, we should be getting better at it. As Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. This ongoing renewal is the freshness and abundance the psalmist is referring to, taking place on the inside, not the outside. The fruit, as Paul points out in Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should exude these qualities more and more in old age. As we, and as we do, we praise God and glorify God. In verse 15, you say, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. As we get older, we trust God even more. It's not fun getting old, but as we get closer to the end of our journey here, we know it will get better because of the security and safety we find in God. To use the expression rock solid, because we know God's promises cannot be broken. He is the rock we build our spiritual house on. So just to end the, this uh, message tonight, uh, to quote the Lord in Matthew 7, verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these saying, sayings of mine and does them, I will liken, liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock.